This is the One Soldier Canada History Podcast, Episode 6, titled The Taliban Don't Wave, hosted by Dylan Hillier and me, Russell Hillier. Good afternoon, Dylan. Good afternoon, Russ. We came out of the cornfield and took in a scene of utter devastation. The Apache had just loitered over the enemy and ripped him apart with 30mm high-explosive rounds. Shrapnel damage was all over the place. Gouges of earth were torn up and branches were on the ground from where they'd been shot out of the trees. My eye caught on something dangling from a tree branch and my brain said, cannot compute, cannot compute. I thought to myself, what the hell are sausage links doing in a tree? Then I realized they were human intestines. I looked at the ground and saw big pools of blood with smaller blood trails leading off in different directions and into the cornfields. It was readily apparent that any Taliban who had fled from the battle could easily be hiding right next to us in the tall corn. I tried to mentor Shafiq Ullah to send some clearance parties into the cornfields, but he strongly refused. I guessed he was afraid I was right and there were still Taliban hiding all over the place in the corn. What happened next was hotly contested during my court-martial for second-degree murder. Depending on who gave testimony, a few different versions played out. One soldier said we came across a wounded insurgent that some ANA soldiers had just finished kicking and spitting on. He had a small fist-sized hole in his stomach, a partially severed foot, and an injured knee. Another soldier said he thought the insurgent was already dead, with a hole in his stomach the size of a dinner plate. Captain Shafiq Ullah said the man was torn apart, had lost all the blood in, his, in a nearby stream, and was 98% dead. And although they differed in their testimony as to the manner and what was said before and after the incident, two witnesses basically agreed that I had shot the insurgent two times in what was later dubbed by the international press as a mercy killing. As a Canadian citizen, I had the right to remain silent during my trial. I could not be forced to testify. I chose to remain silent during my murder trial. And that right there is an excerpt from the book called The Taliban Don't Wave, written by a man named Robert Semrau. And if you don't know who that is, well, you're going to. <laughs> he is a son, a father, a veteran of the Great War on Terror with two tours in Afghanistan under two different armies. He was a soldier with the British Paratroop Regiment and later on a captain with the Royal Canadian Regiment. He's a successful best-selling author and someone reported to have Jedi-like powers on the battlefield. <laughs> and it's an honor to have Robert Semrau on the show with us today. So Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Honored to be here. Yeah, well, I feel like... Uh, you don't even really need an introduction because if I think back to the year 2009 or 2010, you were basically a daily fixture on, mm. on the news. I mean, I can remember Peter Mansbridge on CBC. It right. was, you'd be hard pressed to have an episode where you right. were not mentioned or your court right. case was not mentioned. Yeah, it was um, definitely in the public eye. So just if there's any younger listeners at home or people outside of the country, I'm going to give a really brief thumbnail sketch. In 2008, you were a Canadian officer in southern Afghanistan mentoring the Afghan National Army. That's right, yeah. So uh, at that time, there was usually 
a platoon-sized element of Afghan National Army, or ANA as we called them, who were attached to a Canadian battle group or a company size. But in my case, we were four Canadians attached to anywhere from about 100 to 150 Afghans. So it was kind of role reversal. And every time they left the wire trolling and looking for a fight, we went with them. And that was our mission. There wasn't a lot of training, because as you read in the book, Captain Shafiqullah said that they knew everything. And it's kind of hard to mentor people who know everything. So they were content just to have us go along as gunfighters and force multipliers with the radio. And uh, I was amazed at how little first aid knowledge anybody had, even their so-called medic. So a lot of times we ended up providing life-saving, you know, critical injury first aid. Yeah, and, and we're going to get into the book and your own wartime experience. I just, I find that fascinating how you say that Shafiq Ullah, this A&A commander, they knew everything already. Right. And it reminds yeah. me a lot, Dylan, of uh, your time with the Kurds, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. You know, I think, it, I think it was Commander Ali or one of them was, uh, you know, I was trying to uh, teach them about not telescoping their barrel out of a window, like, right. you know, stand back and shoot from inside right. uh, or how to move around a corner. Uh, but you know, uh, they either, uh, we don't have time for that or, uh, right. you know, they just, uh, they, 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 they knew better. And, uh, you know, that really showed on the, uh, on the battlefield. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was a crazy amount of pride as well. <clears throat> and unfortunately that pride kills, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like the ego sort of gets right. in the way of things, right? right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, and I know, you know, the Dylan as well, you could never, say anything to them in front of their troops you could never cause them to lose face the whole oriental concept of saving face and being careful to never shame them in public that was uh, very profound in my experience too halfway through the mission you basically uh a chopper comes into your your base two guys get off the chopper actually one of your friends gets off the chopper too right. and says yeah three guys yeah you're being charged for murder and so that sort of kicks off uh this what was it a two-year three-year process right. where... yeah so that was uh that would have been end of december 2009 and it wrapped up in october 2010 so between the moment i was charged up until the final end state where i was uh sentenced yeah it was it was a incredibly long and surreal period of time in my life i guess my lawyer said that the average murder trial for a canadian is two weeks and mine was nine months yeah, and I think it's pretty important to know that you were facing potentially up to 20 years. Right. Yeah, because I was charged with uh, second-degree murder, attempted murder. So either one of those, well, 20 years and 10 years. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an incredible story. Um, you know, murder is a pretty harsh word, I think. Sure. A lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of like severely normal Canadians when they were right. listening to this on the right. news, they were like, well... Is that a murder or a mercy killing? I think right. that's what people on the outside looking in sort of view sure. it as. Yeah. But I mean, the exposure for you is immense. So, well, I mean, it's interesting because the only reason I even got a book deal, the first publisher I approached, nobody ever approached me. I can't speak for you guys, but nobody came to me. I approached them. The first guy literally laughed in my face. And the second was a really nice man called Don Lonnie. And he was with John Wiley and Sons, and he was very forthright and honest. And he said, the only reason we're even talking to you now is because you had your Warholian 15 minutes of fame and you were yeah, in the public yeah, eye. Exactly. And I said, well, what do you mean? 
And he said, we get hundreds of submissions every month from serving soldiers and from veterans who want to tell their story, but there's no interest. There's no interest for it. And that absolutely broke my heart. That really, really bothered me to think of all of the amazing stories that are out there and these people will never have a chance to tell it, right? But their point was, you know, we could do this and we could publish it, but there's not enough people who would even be interested. And only because you were in the public eye, you were in the news so much, we're going to give you this chance. And yeah, I think that is the like absolute same as probably our situation. You know, no one would have given it the time of day had there not been uh, like quite a bit of media coverage right. about uh, like what I was up to in totally. Iraq. Uh, right. You know, and, and that was only bolstered by I think probably uh, like our father being uh, MPP, right? Uh, because no one else that really went over and garnered that uh, sort of attention. But you were the so, first guy too, though. Yeah, so yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's true. Yeah, but I mean, I would say time would uh, has proven that assertion wrong because. The military, we've talked about this before, right? How the, the military writing community in Canada is pretty small. Like, you've got right. yourself with the Taliban, don't wave. You've got Jody Medic, uh, what's that? Canadian sniper, or uh, sniper yeah. book. Uh, yeah. Scott Casey in BC, he's written Ghost Keepers. Right. The Patrol. The Patrol, Ryan right. Favelle, yeah. One Soldier. It's a small community, but like, all those books have been pretty successful, right? Yeah. So when, yeah, they're doing well. Yeah. So, when. Sure when we hear people in the publishing side of the world say, oh, there's no interest, right? Well, well it's is that funny. true? It's funny. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not sure, but it's interesting because my publisher said any Canadian book, especially about a topic like this that has sold more than 10,000 copies is an unmitigated success, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of interesting as well when you think about that, right? Totally, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I heard uh, the stat that I always come back to is... Uh, the average non-fiction book written by a Canadian author about a Canadian subject sells less than 500 copies. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, we, and we can look at these military books and like we're, we're blowing that number out of the water, right? But there's, yeah, it's, it's a weird world because uh, as one person put it to me, one agent who we worked with, she said that it's an uphill battle right. being a man writing about right. warfare because... The publishing industry, whether it's, you know, the editors, the publishers, the agents, they're typically, not all the time, but typically women who don't really have an interest in this sort of thing. Right. The the literary elite doesn't really care about these kinds right. of stories. Right. If you go to America, there's tons of military That's books. Right. Yeah, right. Well, I think we were mentioning it before, before the microphone came on, Alistair Luft. Mm-hmm. He's doing really well, and he's written two fiction books, but he's... Uh, He's a serving member, yeah, and uh, they're phenomenal. It's a really, really good read. Yeah. So yeah, the, absolutely. There's people out there, and they're they're turning it out. Right? Yeah. So. You're you're on what is it like your fifth edition of the book or? It's uh, well, I think if I'm not totally incorrect, John Wiley and Sons published, I think it was four or five editions. Yeah. And I think now it's in its thirteenth alone by Harper Collins, so it's probably give or take around the 17th printing. The title of the book is, I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. The Taliban yes. Don't Wait. Because I had to fight for that. Did you? Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. that. Well, they, uh, as supportive as, as uh, John Wiley and Sons were, they kind of wanted it to be named like a battlefield memoir. And I'm like, I'm not some stuffy old Canadian general. This isn't a battlefield yeah. memoir. Like, I was there on the ground fighting, right? Much as you were, Dylan, just in a different time and place. Well, you were in Afghanistan too, right? Yeah. Just so, uh, no fighting going on right, when I was right. there. 
but yeah so uh so i actually i had to push pretty hard for that and uh thankfully they gave it to me in the end so yeah well what i like about it is uh the Taliban don't wave like when i see that title on a shop i'm like okay well what is Rob talking about? The Taliban. Right. It's like an intriguing title. It's sort of like right. like a puzzle or a riddle that you want to solve. Right. And you, know, you want to find out why. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or, yeah. What the hell does that yeah, even yeah, mean? Yeah. Right? yeah. And the beauty of the book is that you don't give it away at the beginning. You got to read right. the book to find right. out. And yeah. then by the time, well, General I'm, McKenzie almost spilled the beans. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. In the introduction, yeah. I noticed right. that. Yeah. He but held yeah. out in the end. So. Dylan, you remember the uh, with one soldier? We we had a whole bunch of ideas that we were kicking around for the title. Yeah. Yeah. And we had, uh, I forget, like, I think we had, like, I didn't, I know, I know, I didn't like any of them. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'm unhappy with, uh, with the one that I did get. So. Oh, yeah? You're not happy yeah. with that? No. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's slightly inaccurate. Uh, this part, a Canadian soldier's fight against the Islamic State. I was not a Canadian soldier. Right. Um, Right. Who was fighting the Islamic right. States. Yeah, it makes it seem like you were uh, yeah, Canadian yeah. in the uniform, right? Yeah, yeah. State supported. Yeah. yeah. What would you have had on the title? So was that the publisher, though? Did they force that on you? Or yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, I would have, well, like, if, if we were going with something, I would have just said a Canadian's fight. Uh, right. Just the Well, it's funny you should say that because when John Wiley and Sons printed the back right up on my book, I was fairly unhappy with that. And I saw why they did it. But I didn't have a whole lot of say in that. So when HarperCollins went to publish it, because in 2012, HarperCollins bought out all of John Wiley and Son's non-fiction, and they decided to keep printing it, which I was grateful for. Yeah. But at that time, they changed the write-up, right. much more in line with what I would have liked. But okay. as, as you guys know, the second you hand over that final submission, your baby is now at the orphanage, and you have very little say whatsoever yeah. in what they do with it. And if they're nice and supportive, they're going to let you have some say but you're not entitled to it no right? they can do whatever the hell they want with it at that point so yeah i know like we we actually i remember at the time uh we we sort of talked about like how if you if you left out the word canadian like a canadian soldiers fight then it would have been like more broad maybe like maybe it would have got into america a bit yeah, more yeah. but well it's really hard to break into the american market as you were saying yeah. beforehand with they have thousands thousands of books like military genre stuff so yeah and if you're not if you're not an american author right. then we're right. good luck yeah, yeah swimming upstream for yeah. sure the only thing i would have done i would have put like a, a skull on the uh <laughs> punisher skull yeah exactly yeah. yeah tacky tacky i like the one soldier though it's i like that and it's yeah. nice yeah it's uh yeah it's we we would not have come up with that title i like it but yeah whatever. well I, I i just didn't like like i guess uh like my i remember my like beef with it at the time was uh you know i felt it kind of uh like excluded i i know it's my story but it i felt like it excluded everybody else that sure. i was uh like sure. fighting with you right know, so. yeah and i get that yeah um, well, while the mic's on, I want to say for the record how proud I am of you and how proud I was at the time and praying for you every single day. Thank you very it, much. I think it's incredible what you did. Absolutely incredible. And so, for all of the warriors, women and men in Canada, I think everybody was behind you. Well, so actually, uh, you know, during this uh, podcast, I was going to, you know, I was going to try to, uh, like, well, ask and discern, uh, like, what type of officer you were and, uh, or are, uh, and that kind of gives me uh, a pretty good idea because, in fact, not everybody, especially in the Canadian military sure. community, was uh, sure. was supportive. I've, uh, I'm sure you know him. I won't mention his name, but 
my last uh, OC, me and him were very, very close uh, before and during deployment. Excellent officer. Right. He, uh, yeah, he... Uh, See, I, I can relate. I, I, after I did this, right. uh, yeah. not so not I so can much. completely relate in that during the time of my incident, and, and as you both know, it's amazing the people that you think would automatically be supportive. Yeah. A lot of times they ain't. Yeah. And people who you've never met, complete strangers, stand up and they've got your back yeah. all the way to the wall. Like, yeah, I, I found that I found it troubling and disturbing. The people who I was sure had my back disappeared into the wind. Yeah. And complete strangers or or people who I would never have expected had my back. Yeah. It's, it's a strange a... phenomenon. Do you think that's like self-preservation on these people's part? Um, yeah, that's at, what at I was some thinking. point, yeah, for sure, for sure. Because I forget who said it, but it was every rank above captain in the Canadian military. You're a politician, and you have to be in order to survive. And and that being said, I I had some phenomenal majors above me and guys who I would have laid down my life for men that I trusted completely. There's some amazing uh, female officers out there too. But, but yeah, it's, it's disturbing, the people that you thought. Like, I had a guy who I easily, I, like, I fought with him over there. He was part of the battle group. And he said to me afterwards, I love you and you're my friend, but I can't support what you were accused of. I would have given him a Band-Aid and a, and a shot of morphine. And I said, well, all of our morphine was taken off of us. We never had morphine. And when your foot's gone, your legs attached, your other legs attached by a ribbon, and it's over your shoulder, and you have like a shark bite out of your stomach, and your guts are in the trees. There isn't a band aid that's going to help, right? <laughs> so, but 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 what but, I found so disturbing about that is this was a combat veteran. This was a guy who I was literally with my Afghans fighting next to on the ground. Like, if I had been in Afghanistan, watching you know the news, you know in the DFAC or whatever in the Chow Hall. And I saw this Captain Robert Semra arrested for this. I wouldn't have judged him. I wouldn't have judged him at the time because I wasn't there. I don't mm. know what were the circumstances, what what it involved, and what had happened. Right. So even at the time, I wouldn't have judged anybody. You know. Well, I think. Uh, I mean, it, like you, you use the word judge, but I mean, you can judge somebody in a positive light. I mean, right. what, like, and, and that's certainly. Uh, uh, and, and I think most Canadians did judge you as like in a supportive oh, the, way. The uh, support was phenomenal. Yeah. I, I never would have made it without the support well, from the civilian and the military sector. And the people who didn't support me in the military at least had the decency to keep their damn mouth shut. Yeah, yeah. So, so do you think? Uh, do you think like the public attention uh, and support from the like, Canadian populace uh, like had any bearing on the oh, outcome? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, because. I, I had a lot of respect for the judge, but I don't think there's a judge who could be in the limelight as much as Judge Perron was who couldn't watch yeah. the media, yeah. who wouldn't have seen something. And I'm not saying he was unduly influenced, but in my gut, I've always believed that had the population, the civvy population, been against me, or at least not for me, that my outcome would have been different. So, so I, I absolutely 100% credit the Canadian civilian population with with their support and literally keeping me out of jail. Yeah. I, I had like phone calls from a elderly senior citizen sewing circle in Victoria 
who called me to say, are you that guy? And I said, yes, and we love you and we're praying for you. Like the, the support I felt was amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. I was, uh, I was like bound, uh, like just drawing a parallel to my situation. Like I always felt, well, because like, you know, pe- some of the people I was with, uh, you know, I, it could be constituted that I did something not so legal Sure. Uh, and I always felt like if I didn't have like the overwhelming support right. of right. the Canadian population, then I probably right. would have been charged. No, just, I, just like they are sure. doing with people in the UK right now. Right. Uh, well, I, I loved the point that you made in the book is that you wanted to show the world that not everybody was running to join ISIS. Yeah, Some yeah. people were going to fight that level. And I mean, like I told you before, like I worked in Suleimania. I was there for almost a year, right? You know, and then going to Erbil, and I love the Kurds. They're absolutely, the Kurdish people are fantastic. They're amazing. So for you to go and to show that support, because what they're facing is like Nazi-level evil. Yeah, like yeah, this is absolutely. This is fucking World War II Nazi-level horrific evil, which is crossing the face of the earth. So yeah. for you, for you to physically up and go there, and to not just go in a supporting role, but an actual war fighting role. I was, I was so impressed and I was so proud of you. I'm proud of you now. That's what makes you one of the good officers. Mm. Yeah. Well, Dylan, on that note, Dylan, you have this term that I really like. Uh, I think you called it, uh, people who have been quote institutionalized in the military. Yeah. yeah. in, In other words, it's people who, they're just like, all they can do is sort of like, well, they're like their, their entire life. And, persona is is the military right no i hear you i was i was after my arrest and before my court-martial i volunteered to go to kingston to be an afghan role player to literally i just had my whole omelet experience believe me i know the afghan mentality i can play afghan so i went as an actor and it was actually really fun and at one point i was helping the omelet because they were i think it was who were they it was 110 task force 110 and, uh, and it was PPCLI guys, I believe, who were going to do the omelet roll. And I was helping this young captain. He was a really cool guy. We really hit it off. And uh, this major, who was actually my boss on the exercise, came up to me afterwards. And he said, um, and with a completely straight face, he wasn't being sarcastic or facetious. He goes, I see you're helping that omelet guy a lot. And I said, yes, I was a captain in the omelet. I want to share my institutional knowledge, my corporate knowledge. I want to help him. Like he's about to be in harm's way. Why wouldn't I help him? And he goes, well, remember that you work for me. And I said, yes. And do you have a problem with me helping this guy during working hours? Like, is that not part of my job? Is that not why I'm here? And with a completely straight face, I shit you not. He goes, Rob, I'm going to tell you something. I'm like, I can't wait to hear it. (laughs) He goes, at home, above my pool table, I have a uh, a bunch of medals and certifications and awards. And I said, okay, great. And do you know what they're for? And I wanted to say, for never making a wave. Yeah. For never making a difference in your career. And he says, for never making a wave. And I go, <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. So you're actually bragging about receiving awards and certificates for towing the party line and for never making a wave. And I said with the, I said right back to him, what a difference I'm sure you made. Yeah, what yeah. a difference you made in the lives of young soldiers. Like imagine bragging 
about never making a wave and never making a difference. So yeah, different mentalities. Yeah, right? yeah. And that's cool when you're back home in Canada and it's a little fucking different when you're overseas and lives are at risk, right? I take that back. It's not cool when you're back home in yeah, Canada. Yeah, no, no. And it's really not cool when you're overseas. Well, because like it, what it does is like it gets ingrained, right? Uh, right. And then... Right. Like, but, uh, but imagine bragging. Imagine yeah, yeah. Imagine looking, looking at somebody and bragging, saying, I never made a difference, yeah. you know? And, 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 and that, it's unfortunate because that's uh, like... Not in every case, but uh, like certainly in like in many that I've seen is like those are the types of people that um, like get move up the ranks, right? right. Uh, yeah, yeah. He it, had a good career. Yeah, right? yeah. He wasn't investigated. Well, yeah, I mean yeah. that that ties into my book. Yeah. I'm arguing with this major, and at the end of the argument, why they're not, why he's not allowing the Canadian snipers. To pick which eye to shoot out of these Taliban at like 600 yards, right? And the the Canadian major says, well, I don't want an NIS investigation. I don't want a special military police investigation. So you're not going to do your job yeah. because you're terrified of being investigated. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Bravo. It's interesting you bring that up because I, I wanted to go there because mm. in... In all, I mean, your book is, it's action-packed, there's patrols, there's you getting shot at, dodging bullets, uh, dodging friendly fire, sure. hunting down the Taliban. Tons of action, but that part where I think it's Major Bane, right. who you're, yeah. you go in and you've just arrived at So you've just arrived there and you notice this like baffling pattern where I did. these like... I did notice these, <laughs> It was hard not to notice. There's these strange men. Well, why are Taliban planting IEDs in the middle of the daylight? I mean, yeah. the Canadian snipers, not, not even special forces snipers. But our reg force snipers are widely regarded as the best in the world. Literally. Mm -hmm. That's that's no exaggeration. The rest of the militaries around the world consider our snipers the best. And at that range, our snipers could have literally chose what eyeball to shoot out. They could have. Mm -hmm. Only if they were allowed. And they weren't being allowed by this major bane. Do you want to get into like why that is? Like why why did this officer Despite all the evidence, uh, these are these are strange fighting age males right. uh, on the oh, road at night. Broad, so no, was... not, not at night. In broad daylight okay. at times. In broad daylight. So I literally got into a barrack room lawyer argument with this guy. And I had my 2IC, the wizard, right? Warren Longview. Yeah. And we had the sniper debt sergeant who was PPCLI. And then on the other side was Major Bain. And his company sergeant major, who was an amazing guy, the sergeant major supported us against Bain, basically. But he you know, still had to be careful because this is his boss. But ultimately, Major Bain said it himself. He justified his own inaction because he was terrified of having a special police national investigation service, an NIS investigation, into him if he made the wrong call. And I said, sir, you're not making the wrong call if it's broad daylight and they're planting a bomb in the middle of the road and it looks like a howitzer shell and they're dragging out a black line and they're hiding behind a wall and they're waiting for Canadians to come up. I said, this isn't the local city doing road repair at high noon, right? There's not 12 guys watching and one guy working. There's two guys burying a fucking bomb in the middle of the road. Like what, what more evidence can you possibly need? What more can you need? 
and that wasn't enough. Right. And he keeps oh. coming back to this phrase, "What if they're wrong?" Right. Right. So he'd rather. Right. How did that affect you guys? Because it, it put yourself... all of us at risk. Is right. what it did. It risked all of our lives because now me and my crazy band of Afghans have to go out. And if you've ever seen an Afghan court in an Afghan, you know, protective circle where they're trying to stop civilians and military from tripping this bomb. Yeah, it's not a good cordon. It's not following the manual. When you have an Afghan National Army soldier go up and kick the IED, yeah, yeah. So we're all at risk because a lot of people don't realize this, but after an IED, whoever's nearest the IED, they become part of the shrapnel. So their bones and their blood and their equipment actually becomes part of the bomb. Yeah, so I was, yeah, it's totally savage. So I was saying, you know, at one point when... Uh, you know, this lieutenant was jumping up and down on the fucking hay bale. And I'm yeah. saying, everybody take cover because his head is going to become a meat torpedo <laughs> flying at 200 feet per second. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. There's no there's no justifying. There's no explanation. I mean, to me, it was out and out cowardice. It was an absolute leadership failure. And to me, it was criminal. Why was that never investigated? Yeah. yeah. Why wasn't that looked into, right? You, you get a new major who comes in later. Yeah, uh, he was ma- awesome. Major Overman. Overman, or, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and of course, the great amazing. line from the book is he's, uh, I can just picture it, you guys are in a room. Right. You got Major Bain on one side, right. this new major coming in. He's right. like, okay, guys, well, I've heard that in the past, uh, 100% certainty wasn't right. good enough right. uh, when it comes to taking out these ID planners. Right. So from now on, it's going to be 51%. We're fifty-one percent sure. Then we're I take had a out. war boner. I've <laughs> never heard. And if anybody doesn't oh, yeah. know what a war boner is out there for your listeners, it's when you're excited to know that the enemy is finally going to get to taste some, right? They're going to get it. Yeah, he was that major. Was he was inspirational, and uh, his men and women loved him. And uh, I myself would have laid down my life for that guy in a second. Was he, he a royal as well? Or? He was, yeah, yeah. But he he was uh, Mike Company's OC. Okay. But he absolutely got it, and he wasn't like insanely gung ho. Where you know we got to go out and kill somebody. He was all about you know the fighting, uh, you know, like the coin operations, counterinsurgency. He got it. He, he just mm-hmm. understood it, and uh, he supported his men and women. And thank you. And uh, a phenomenal leader. I I looked up to that guy. He was an amazing leader. And when he said that, I wanted to put more into the book. But I was actually told by the book, by the publisher's author that I couldn't say what I wanted to say right. at the time. Yeah. But I wanted to say fucking yes. Like that is yeah. absolutely the type of leadership that this is called for. Because, I mean, it was a couple of weeks before, you know, Major Oberman even arrived. And that whole time, this Major Bain was just massively putting all of us at risk. So for this guy to turn up and say 51, good enough. Like like when we had that confrontation with Major Bain, the sniper detachment sergeant afterwards, he had fucking tears in his eyes. And not mm-hmm. tears of sadness, tears of frustration. Yeah. Like, like a grown man, right, hardened through mm-hmm. war and through training, you know, this like those are some pretty fucking tough mental individuals, those snipers. And for him to have tears in his eyes out of frustration, I'd say that's pretty indicative indicative that shit was going sideways fast, right? It wasn't going well for him. Yeah, that's right. And I'm kinda curious, uh in Afghanistan, like for every for every major overman who who did say fifty one percent is good, how many how many major banes were there? A lot. A lot. Yeah, and, and I, I said this to my warrant officer. 
every single day we looked at each other and one of us would say it, we're not the first guys to breeze through this place. What the fuck is going on? Why is it this way? Why is it like, why are we having these arguments? Why am I arguing with a Canadian regular forces major telling him that he has to give the sniper's authorization to shoot because every time he doesn't, he's putting all of us at risk. Why am I having this conversation? Why is this even happening? And, and we used to say, what's going on with these majors? Like there was just, I've had this talk with my fellow captains and we're all like, what happened? I don't know. And my one buddy thinks it was kind of a sign of the times where they were still kind of cold war officers mm -hmm. right you know thinking about fighting in germany against the russians but i don't know i think it was guys who put their career ahead of their troops i had a, a PO in the navy yeah yeah right totally common there was a PO cassavet and he was one of my uh basic like week one day one he was one of my instructors at saint jean sur richelieu in quebec for the officers training and this guy was amazing and yeah, we got to the ethics part of officers training and he said, and I never forgot it. I never forgot what he said. And I remember it to this day. He was in front of all of us and, you know, different trades and different branches. But everybody is supposed to be an officer in this group. And he said, at some point, you're going to have to make a choice. And the choice you're going to have to make is between your career and doing what's actually right. And sadly, most of you are going to fail. Yeah. And you're going to choose career over doing what's right. And uh, I never forgot that. But I mean, going back to uh, just like the, the Cold War thing, um, I mean, it, it, it makes sense that that is uh, the mentality because, well, from what I, from my experiences in the military, that's all we ever trained for or did was, uh, yeah. was you know, fighting, fighting the Russians on the right. European pla right. Like plane, right? right? Like, right. Uh, like e even, uh, even my workup training to Afghanistan consisted of like, section attacks in snowshoes right. like yeah about as unrealistic as you could get yeah yeah uh like, well, oh, yeah we're, we're, we'll, we'll, do, <laughs> we'll do a frontal you know like uh right. it's just like it's it's just these uh like there's this men mentality in the canadian military like well like it's just like checks and boxes right uh right. and it's still very much based on the cold war and i don't know i i found it like absolutely ridiculous uh so it's back to basics, back to the basics. When do we ever do anything but the basics? Um, right. And I say, like me from a troop, uh, I mean, <clears throat> I guess, uh, you know, it's all about like command and control are, that's well, more important than uh, the sure. individual soldier skills. But Yeah, but um, also the facilities to train in the, you know, Afghan village. I mean, I don't think that Afghan village outside or inside Wainwright was built until years after the war had even started. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. that took a long time to get that level of realism. And we went to Texas. And, yeah. and admittedly, Texas looked a lot like Afghanistan. Yeah. So, you know, when I was going through, it was better, at least. Yeah. And, and the TCCC, the Tactical Combat yeah. Casualty Care, which is basically, you know, special forces medical training yeah. for regular troops. That was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And the gunfighter package. But yes, absolutely. There was something about a whole generation of officers where they were infected by the Cold War mentality and it did not translate well at all. And some were to Afghanistan and some were able to overcome it, like Oberman, right? 
Yeah, it's man. that it's like that age old uh, saying where you know sort of like the, it reminds me of the generals are always prepared to fight the last war. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's Absolutely. what you guys are talking about there, yeah. the Cold yeah. War. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, and you can you can find this uh, you know example of leadership if we want to call it that everywhere. Like sure. whether it's you know like these in education or right. uh, you know working in the government or right. wherever you are, there's going to be, you know, you have the leaders who are going to check off the boxes and they're going to be in that moment that you right. just said where they got to make a decision about doing the right thing or advancing their career. Well, it's the human condition. It is. Right? Yeah. And it never, it doesn't really change, but that's what makes the difference between a, a guy that you're going to be willing to follow into battle right. and potentially die for and somebody who, right. you know, yeah, it wouldn't c- cross the street to piss. Exactly. On because, because you know, he's going to knife you in the back if it's, right. you know, if, right. if it suits him. So right. yeah, it's, well, uh, I, I don't know, like, uh, it's, uh, one, one thing I, like, a huge difference I noticed about, uh, like, although, like, my, the mission I was in in Afghanistan wasn't really a combat mission, um, I, there was still that risk, right? Sure. But, um, like, what I noticed, like, being in, uh, Iraq is that, like, the Kurds, like, they were focused on, like, actually fighting the war and not, like, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, like, you know, every day, like, uh, one section would have to like go up and like sweep the like parade square, right? Right. So like, this was like yeah, snowing sand. Uh, right. like, yeah, who cares? Like, like yeah. but like that's what like, and our uh, like the like the like the commander of the mission. I can't I can't remember his name, but like, uh, yeah, that, that's what those are the kinds of things that he was concerned with. Uh, uh, you know whether our like boots were bloused or like it's just it, it's, well some people get wrapped up in the bullshit right yeah, yeah they can't get their head around it but at least with the Kurds unlike the Canadians like nobody is afraid then or now of you know six divisions of Taliban invading Canada <laughs> yeah, we're not yeah. worried about it it's, yeah, not, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. just not going to yeah, happen yeah. but for the Kurds it is such a completely different reality yeah. where they're fighting for life and death. Yeah. Like they're literally dying for their homeland mm-hmm. and it's game on. Yeah. It is serious. So that's what I really liked about the British army because they still had the world war two mentality. They did not forget the time right. when operation sea lion was about to take place and the Nazis had black binders full of names of people who were going to be collected and murdered. They don't forget that time. Yeah, yeah. Like every man and woman served. Mm-hmm. You served in some capacity. Every single person served. And they get that. And they still get it. So it totally leads to a different army, right? Yeah. When we've got these vast oceans separating us from these conflicts, it's nowhere near as real. Yeah. yeah. When you're in Erbil... And they're 60 miles away? Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. It's existential at that Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Like you yeah, lose yeah. the battle and, and you know your, your, your family, your kids, they're, they're yeah. going to be dead or enslaved mm-hmm. or worse. So the stakes yeah. are... Right. I guess you could say the stakes are too high to be worried about uh, yeah. your, your boots being blousy yeah, and yeah. stuff. Uh, so how do you... Uh, like, how do you feel about your like service as a NCM and officer? Like, what's the... Like NCM in the British military and uh, yeah. like an officer in the Canadian military. Well, what, what like what made you decide to go the officer route? Sure. Uh, did you enjoy it more? Yeah, I don't. Know, I'm very interested. Yeah, well, I wanted. I always wanted to be a paratrooper. Yeah, and I knew after the ugliness in Somalia, our airborne was disbanded, yeah. which I think was a complete disgrace. That As they do disbanded I. As do it I. like that, right? Um, 
Regardless, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But <laughs> well, we can get into that. Yeah, too. well, yeah. we may have to. We may have to. I still proudly, like, I was never technically Canadian Airborne, yeah. although I was wearing Airborne wings yeah. because that's how yep. the system worked. I wasn't allowed to wear British, I guess. But yeah, I, I still wear my Canadian Airborne Regiment T-shirts. Yep. And yeah, I met a guy the other day at Canadian Tire, and he was talking to me about it. he was a veteran as well. But no, for uh, I think it really helped. Um, I'm really proud of the time that I served as a private in the British Army. And the Brits were surprisingly good for informing all ranks. Okay. Knowledge dispels fear was yeah, the yeah. motto of the jump instructors at Oxfordshire when you go to do your jumps. And the Army was really good with... I mean, obviously, as a private, you're still going to be treated like a mushroom, kept in the dark and fed on shit. But they did a better job than I think we do in Canada. Yeah. So for me to have that experience of, you know, shit rolls downhill and always being on the receiving end. But we had really good officers yeah. in the parachute regiment. Like if you were shite, you didn't make it. Yeah, yeah. You were not allowed to be an officer in the parachute right, regiment. Right. Like it was considered an elite unit. Yeah, yeah. And technically, I mean, things have changed a little bit, but it was the equivalent of the American Rangers. Yeah. Like you're tier two. Yeah, yeah. Anytime the SAS needed support troops or follow-on or direct action, it was always the parachute regiment they went to, right? So to have that experience as a private and to see how it should be, I think it really helped me as an officer because I knew what it was like to have those feelings. The golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated. So I always instituted what I called the Rob Semra guarantee. I'm not one of these power-mad officers who retains knowledge for the sake of feeling cool. When I know something, I'm going to pass it on. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and pass it downhill, right? And, and I think that helped. I think it really helped. It helped to have been a private as an officer. And then what really helped was when I went to Afghanistan the second time. And then the third time, as you know, an accused murderer, I wasn't shitting my pants. Yeah. Because I've been to Afghanistan before. I've dealt with the people. I've seen shit. We had the odd angry shot weighing overhead. Like my first tour was nowhere near as kinetic as the second tour as a Canadian officer. But the first tour, we still got shot at. There were still IEDs. There were still people being hurt. And I think that really, really helped. Like, you could tell when the ramp came down on the Herc at Kandahar Airfield, who was a veteran who'd been there right, before, right. who was puking when they smell the burning shit in the air and the heat, yeah. and who was like, oh, God, and they're flashbacking the all the crap they've had to endure the last time they were there, right? But yeah, I, I don't know if that answered your question or not, but it yeah, no, it, it helped. It really helped. Just uh, and like, you know, one of the, uh, I don't know if you know this guy, uh, he's, uh, well, when I left, I guess he was a LT or captain in uh, two PPCLI, but at Davies, he was a, he was a Royal Marine okay. uh, commando at NCM uh, before joining the Canadian military. And he was like, one of the best officers. I, I, I didn't serve yeah. directly under him, but he was a... Uh, it's too bad that he was a Marine and not a para, but well, you can't I mean, hold too I much mean, against him. I mean, come on, come on. <laughs> In the book, you, you don't really get into... Uh, like you, you do get into it a little bit at the beginning about your time with the British right. paratroopers. Um, and you have a great scene where... I, it's in like Kabul, I think. Right. But yeah. there's a coliseum. The, and the first international day of peace, which was nothing but... <laughs> the guy releases these doves into the air right. and the kid gets it and there's a human stampede. Yeah, it was crazy. I've never seen bodies pushed from the top of the Colosseum before. I'd never experienced any of that. The sound that a body makes like a bag of wet meat 
hitting the deck, right? Yeah, it was it was a horrific day. Yeah, massive it, riot. It, yeah. it it really goes to show like what you guys were up against. I mean, yeah. well, we were the sheriffs of Kabul. Like at that time, there was there was no tele. I mean, if history is correct, then the Taliban and Al Qaeda were pushed out of the capital Kabul in December fourteenth. That's the date they put on it mm. of two thousand and one. And we were there the first week of January of 2002. And all of the crime and the robbers and the rapists and the hideous fucking people that we were trying to stop were Northern Alliance. So we called ourselves, I, I saw this, uh, what do you call it, a patch, and it was Sheriff of Baghdad. Well, right. we were the sheriffs of Kabul. Yeah, yeah. And we were literally trying to stop the Northern Alliance. Yeah. The so-called good guys. Rain in our allies. Right, right. right. Like, From robbing and raping their own people. Yeah, but yeah. in their mind, it wasn't their own people because it was a different tribe. Right. And it was all tribalism. So you're not part of us. And if history teaches us anything, it's when you turn somebody into a subhuman that atrocities follow. And that's literally what was happening in Kabul. So we were just cops. We were just yeah. doing police actions, like we were arresting people all the time. Yeah, right? yeah, and and the uh, the mob that you talk about, it's just like so frenzied because yeah, like they, they want to get this. They want to dub. get or, yeah. well, so only so many people were allowed into the stadium right. to watch the soccer game. So you have your halves, which are all the privileged elite and the mayors and the politicians, etc., and your have-nots who were ten thousand angry, pissed-off civvies outside who want to get in. Right? And so when the doves of peace were released, they'd been kept in their cages for so long that they were basically doped up. They flew two or three feet, and everybody wanted to take home a commemorative dove. Right. So they bum-rushed the field, and then they ripped the doves apart. And that's where the little boy got hurt trying to piece his dove back together. Like it was hideous. And that's where, at the top of the stadium, people started getting pushed off. And somebody was grabbing my C6, my GPMG. Right. So I'm boot stomping this guy and like, <laughs> people are screaming. People are up on top of the German, you know, armored vehicles. And the Germans are spraying them down the fucking face with chemical <laughs> retard. And the, oh, it was anarchy. And I mean, the paras from their time in Northern Ireland love putting down a riot. Like they love it. Like there's nothing more fun. Not even combat, not even gunfights. Yeah. Putting down a riot mm -hmm. is their, you know, most favorite thing in the whole world. So yeah, it was a it was a special day. Yeah, special and, and day. you're the you're, first international day of peace. Totally, as it, it turned out. Very ironic, of right. course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but maybe, maybe maybe a little bit of foreshadowing there too. No kidding. Uh, well, and I mean, I mean, this is literally the stadium where the Taliban cut off heads. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I mean, it's a coliseum like in Rome, and a coliseum is all about blood and murder. That's right. So you've got this whole horrific aura and vibe of death permeating the air in the best of yeah, times. Which those people in the stands probably were accustomed well, to. And, and they would have been forced to watch. Right. They would have been forced to watch their own relatives get beheaded. Yeah. And that's something, you know, same thing with ISIS, right? And I know you can relate to this, Dylan, but people back home in Canada, they just don't get the level of evil. They don't understand it. And I don't know if it's part denial because it's too horrific to try and imagine but, I mean, I met Afghan soldiers whose whole fucking village had been wiped out by the Taliban. The men and the fighting age males had been put up against a wall and murdered by the Taliban. The women and the children, the girls, had been gang raped in front of their men. And then the women were killed and the girls and the young boys were led off to sexual slavery. Yeah. Like, that is Nazi-level evil. Mm -hmm. That is an unprofound, you know... 
unbelievable level of evil which is real and it's happening and you know christ you know all the atrocities that you know isis has committed and this is something that we want to fight and then you have people saying it's not our fight so i was home for a funeral my cousin dale had passed away too young and very tragically and my aunt said to me well why are you going back you know this is just before my second tour why are you going back why do you care and i said well you're a farmer imagine these assholes turn up they murder your husband they gang rape you and they murder you and then they take my cousin janet and she's sold off to sexual slavery that is the reality of what these people have to face so who wouldn't want to fight that why would you not want to be a part of a group that's fighting that it, 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 like that's a question that's like really hard uh for other people to understand though right. uh like like I, I have my answer and it's just uh it's because it's what i'm meant to do right uh and well, you're called to do it and, well like and i don't know how else to to like, tell people or like when, when people ask me similar questions because a lot of people uh like don't have any interest in going to like prevent right. these types of things. Right. Uh, like what, why, why is it that like some people like, care? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or, and, and like, uh, and not even like, I don't even know if I want to like use the word, uh, like care. It's just like, it, you just like know that it's, uh, that it's something that you like, that you're meant to do, I guess. Right. Uh, and like, you know, that's why, you know, I left, uh, left my job in Toronto and I'm exploring like opportunities overseas. Uh, I'm sure it's why you uh, pursued that sort of work uh, afterwards. Continue to pursue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I think part of it's your upbringing. I think another part of it is the education and the experience you've had along the way. Mm. But I think a a third is that whole sheepdog mentality. Like some of us are gifted with the ability to do violence against evil people. Right. And it is a gift. It is absolutely a gift. Like I've stopped guys from beating up their wives in a parking lot when 60 people are watching. Well, why are 60 people watching, but nobody's stopping this guy from beating up his wife and Mm -hmm. ragging her around by the hair in a fucking parking lot while their 10 year old boy's crying. Why is nobody doing that? Why is nobody stopping it? Right. So yeah, there's, there's definitely, there's definitely some psychology. It's confidence, right? Like a lot of it, I, if, if somebody is watching that happen, they might want to do something about it, right. but they're not sure if they're like physically able yeah. to. But but um, courage can be taught. Yeah. Right? Courage can absolutely be taught. Like you teach a child to do anything, right? You just have to find yourself in those situations and you have to step up. I've had my ass kicked. Yeah. I haven't won every single fight I've yeah. ever been yeah. in. Not by, yeah. not by a large shot. Right? Nor have any of us. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. No, it, it's an interesting thing. I think uh, that that's one thing the military definitely does do. It, it does give you that sense of confidence that, you know, you know how to handle a situation. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it makes Absolutely. the, you know, all those like, little first world problems not seem so mm. big. And uh, I'm joking about that all the time yeah. with my friends. Like, that is a first world problem. Yeah. Why do you care so much about that? And when I catch myself being in the first world, having these problems, I right. literally catch myself. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, like, like I got to the, you know, like after I first came back from Afghanistan, like I said, didn't really, like I didn't have a combat tour or anything, but like, you know, like just like seeing, like just a, like, like such a, such a gap of like, like how they live and how we live. Like, so, right. so sometimes like, it's hard. Know, these, uh, it's hard like seeing see people, 
like seeing people ha- like how they react to like small things like mm-hmm. that kind of like pissed me off a sure. little bit yeah, but then too. but then like after I came back from Iraq then like nothing like nothing like like people like bitching about first world problems like, I don't care yeah just like, like you don't I, I, I find it like hard to like really like like right uh, it's hard to relate. Yeah, yeah. But, I, I call them, but I don't get mad about it anymore. Right. Like, like oh, I'm just true. like, eh, like uh, whatever. There's many, many worse things like right. I could be mad about than. Uh, yeah, than I, that. I find it hard to relate to the normies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I call yeah, them yeah. normies. Yeah, well, Rob. Uh, like going back to the uh, the paratroopers, there there's like a formula in a lot of these books where you know the the author will talk about like his childhood growing up in right. like you know rural whatever. What I kind of what I liked about your book was you sort of like skipped all that stuff, which right. people aren't really interested in anyways, right. and you just get right into it. Yeah, uh, was that like a deliberate Absolutely. thing to do? Yeah, I, I've I obviously I'm a huge fan of the military genre, especially in Canada, and I realized that there are so many books out there where they talk about their upbringing, they talk about their experiences, their exercises, and nobody really cares. Nobody gives a shit. That's right. Nobody cares at all. And I thought, how fun would it be? If I just do a little blurb about the International Day of Peace in Kabul, just to show that I've got some background, that I've been here, nobody cares that I was on exercise on the Petawawa plane. Like, <laughs> nobody cares that my parents raised me Christian. Yeah. And I was born in Musha. Like, no one gives a shit about yeah. any of that. Let's just have a complete break and let's just have the ramp come down. We're hit by the stink of the stand. And the oppressive heat and the smell of shit in the air, and let's just get started. Yeah, it was totally yeah. deliberate. You just get right into it, which right. I really liked about yeah, that book. Nice. And but, but I find I find so many times people have three quarters of their book going into the past, and it's filler. Mm-hmm. I I did not need yeah any you didn't filler. need it. Right? I didn't need it. Enough shit went down. That's right. Right from the start, and just surreal. Bafo, strange, bizarre situations like these bearded PPCLI guys turning up. Like, who the fuck are you, and why do you have a, you know, six month beard? Like, yeah. What is going on, right? Let's just because we do things right. Yeah, I know, I know, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, so I don't know. Uh, this kind of kind of ties into things, but uh, so like, like we like I didn't like spend much time on that like growing up either right right no like, yeah I, I like that about next, your guys next to nothing too. but absolutely uh, so well, we, we did talk about you getting like uh, into fights and yeah, uh, yeah but yeah pretty minor stuff uh, but that's to explain why you did what you did later yeah right uh, I did get some feedback maybe from a guy that you remember he knows you uh, it's a captain Ken Adams uh, I'd say he's the second most infamous uh, officer in the RCR but uh he told me that I spent too much time on uh, on the history of uh, on Kurdistan, and like, I was like, like, like what? No, like, like, uh, like yeah. we barely even touched on it. You have to give some background. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Anyways, that that was he was the only one that actually criticized oh, yeah? uh, me. Everybody's a critic, to, right? To, to Everyone's face. a critic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, no, I, everyone else is like, oh, yeah, I love yeah. Davis and Easy Read. He's like, nah, I don't like it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just came out and said it, did he? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, so well I, you got to appreciate the honesty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he's, he's one of my best friends. Cool. Uh, so he, uh, I don't know if you know this story, but uh, so do you know a Major Hubble? Oh, yeah. So he, like my friend Ken, he was a, he's a captain, Ken Adams. So he... 
allegedly or was found out that he did uh, like ordered his uh, troops to slash uh, Hubble's tires uh, which yeah. may be considered an illegal order <laughs> I don't know yeah, yeah yeah possibly so, so he, he got uh, he got booted out of the military as, mm. as well so that's why I made the made the joke that uh, you know the two most infamous yeah ca- that's uh, funny captains you know, I'm so. in good company though. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he said he had a beer with you one time so yeah. oh yeah um well, well there's 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 more thankfully thankfully in the Canadian forces there's more guys like that than there are major banes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. Yeah, this major bane, like it it almost reminded me of uh you've seen the movie Platoon. Sure. So you got like Sergeant Barnes and Sergeant right, Elias. Right. And it almost reminded me of like you have the two majors and you know, it, it reminded me of them not necessarily because of their like personality, but like just two totally different worldviews. Right. Like in Platoon, Barnes is going to, you know, he's going to let you drink alcohol and he's going to be a hard ass though. Right. And he's going to maybe like do some things that you don't agree with, but he's going to keep you safe. Right. Uh, whereas Sergeant Elias, he's going to let you have a good time, smoke some dope. Drink but Sergeant Elias still did the job. He yeah. did, yeah. Right? Yeah. And he still, and he cared about his troops. He did, yeah. Like, I, I don't think Barnes cared about his troops whatsoever. He was all mission oriented. And mission oriented, I've been described that a few times. I don't consider that a negative. I don't consider that an insult. Like the mm-hmm. mission does come first, but then it's the service and then the troops. Yeah, you and have to do it in a way that absolutely right. Yeah, the mission has to be accomplished, but you don't necessarily have to fuck over the troops yeah, in order yeah. to get it done. Yeah, because I tasted that and it sucked. So if there's a way that we can still accomplish the mission, right, and keep everybody safe and try and keep everybody's morale high, because as you know, morale. Is a completely tangible and it's a real thing. Oh, it is man. a living, yeah. Yeah. it is a living, breathing thing. Yeah. And when you shit all over it, right, then people stop giving a fuck and then they switch off. And I think that's where so much PTSD comes into play, right? Is that none of these guys ever had a, a voice. And I used to practice what the SAS practiced, you know, Special Air Service for any of the listeners mm-hmm. who are tracking, like like British. Uh, elite special forces and they called it the Chinese parliament and it wasn't Chinese in a racist sense what they did was anybody who was on the mission and who was risking his life had a say you had a say so sometimes you know maybe the most junior member of the platoon or the patrol would have a better way of doing it yeah yeah and everybody was allowed input so we I'd have my patrol board and I'd say this is what I'm projecting this is what I want to do does anybody have input and then I'd listen That's to awesome. the actual troops. That right? is awesome. Right. And I don't think that happened a lot with a lot of guys. Now, I could get away with that because we were a four-man team. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's going to be a lot harder when you've got 36 men and women in yeah. a mm-hmm. platoon. Yeah. But but I always practiced that. And uh, and I think that went a long way to keeping morale high, right? Yeah, and I think also uh, keeping morale high, you use a lot of humor. Yeah, well, we had to because we. I always said the omelet, like the operational mentor liaison team, the guys who were embedded with the Afghans, that is absolutely not the first tour that you want to be on. It isn't. Right. You should be with the battle group your first time. Yeah. right? You should have very seasoned and mature people in charge of you who've been in the ship before. After you've done or got some time in, then you can join the omelet. Because in the omelet, it was just a foregone conclusion that we're going to be in the ship. We're absolutely going to get rocketed, IED'd, mortared, and shot at. It is 100% guaranteed, and it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. So if you've got a private and a corporal, and it's their first fucking tour, 
not a good idea. Yeah. Right. And it's to me, it was a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And I, I mean, I literally stuck my hand, my arm around my young guy, you know, Forno, on seven different occasions while he wept, while he cried openly because he was so stressed. He was so scared, right? And I'm literally holding this young guy saying, hey man, we're going to be okay, right? We're going to be all right. Everything's going to be okay. As he cried because he was so fucking scared. So when the military police came to him and said what happened, he literally said, I was there. I saw the whole thing. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Just get me back home where it's safe. Really? That That's uh... like, like this to me is like, Kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Blew my mind too. Believe me. So like, so like, like the first time, uh, like I was in combat, uh, like I was with, uh, I was with a group of people that didn't speak English at all. Right. Yeah. The Kurds. And like, like I was having like, like I don't know if this is like I don't know how like like let me know how you feel about this, but I was having the time of my life. Uh, sure, I, I was like, I was like scared, but like, like in like a very like, right. like I, amped up, like in the zone, yeah. like like I'm like I'm like yelling and like chanting and like uh, while you're alive, right? Well, and, and yeah, it's like uh, like you you know like I'm like, but you see that's why war is so addictive because you've, you've never felt so alive, and that's why guys like you and I try and get back to it because after you've experienced that there is no civilian job which will ever come even remotely close to bringing you back to that feeling of being in the moment being alive feeling right like i was i was the same i was terrified i was absolutely scared like when we got murdered when like people were dying all around me i felt my sphincter loosen if i had had to shit i would have shit my pants i was that fucking scared thankfully I'd evacuated my bowels <laughs> two hours before, but I was that fucking scared. But at the same time, when you're in a gunfight, you've never felt so alive because you're you're nothing else matters. You're yeah. literally there in the moment, and and it is addictive as hell. Once you've felt that feeling, there's no going back to like a civvy job. I I like the people I'm working with now. Yeah. Right, and I like what I'm doing, but. We were talking about getting me back to Africa, yeah, and, yeah. I, and I want to go. Yeah, right? absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, there's no getting away from it, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm just like surprised to like hear, uh, like hear that reaction from like uh, from an infantry soldier. Right, but but uh, because he was so scared. Yeah, yeah. He literally said, "I will tell you anything you want to know. Just get me back home where it's safe." Because the fear, as you know, right. In my experience with gunfights and combat, etc., there's two ways to go, right? You're going to fight through it, and, and you may have bad dreams, and you may be traumatized afterwards, but at the time, you're going to fight through it. Or you're going to break at the time, and you're going to become combat ineffective, and right, you're going to have to right. be removed. So what had happened to him was he had become combat ineffective. I call it, you know, Phobos, like the Greeks. The ancient Greek warriors used to pray to Phobos praying mm -hmm. that they wouldn't choke in the moment of truth. You know, I, I'm in the phalanx. I've got my, you know, shield up protecting my brothers. Yeah. I don't want to choke. I don't want to let my brothers down. And that's the shame for me. The shame of letting my brothers and sisters down yeah, yeah. was more powerful than the shame of being hurt. In, right? in the book, you, 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 I don't think you necessarily 
say that Forno is the guy who ratted you out, but you 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 can you like, can easily connect right, the dots. So so what I did in the book was I was really careful, Russ, to only write what I knew at the time. Right. So if there's a part two, if there's a sequel to any of this, thanks. Then there will most definitely be that reckoning. Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't know that at the time. But you must have had a pretty good idea. Absolutely. And, and yet, you, what's interesting to me as an author is that you could have, uh, you could have like savaged this guy like in your book, and, and I'm sure the temptation must have been there. Sure, it was. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you, you don't like. You go. You're, I, you're I, empathetic I, to him. Right. Yeah. And I, I really respected him. He was a smart kid. He had just please. He had just allowed Phobos to grab his guts and give him too hard of a squeeze, right? And having experienced that level of fear, I, I could relate. I could relate. No, and I, I, I literally wrote. I, I promised myself when I started writing this, there will be no vendetta. Yeah. There will be no getting even. I'm not going to shit talk people that I didn't shit talk at the time or say it to their face. I always try and practice say it to their face. Yeah. Right? And, and I literally wrote it from only what I knew at the time. And I suspected, but I didn't know that clearly at the time, that he was the guy who basically threw me under the bus. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. the temptation was well, there. but Yeah, but and you know what? Like I always said, even before my court-martial started, I said, if everybody tells the truth, I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. If you say that his foot was gone, it was gone. This this grievously wounded Taliban yeah. had been shot out of a tree by an Apache helicopter gunship, shooting basically thirty millimeter high explosive grenades. If everybody says that his foot was gone, his right leg was over his shoulder, attached by a piece of meat, right? You know, at a hundred and eighty degree angle, his guts are in the fucking trees, and it looks like a goddamn shark ate out his stomach, and he's bled out. Then I'm going to be okay. But that wasn't the reality. And mm -hmm. what Forno, I think, having read his witness testimony to the military police, was I think that he thought that they wanted to hear that this guy had a boo-boo on his foot, a boo-boo on his knee, and a fist-sized hole in his stomach. Mm -hmm. A fist-sized hole in his stomach. A shark ate out his whole side. Yeah. Like that is not a fist-sized hole in his stomach. His foot's gone. <coughs> like have you, have you ever stubbed your toe? Obviously, we all have. Have you ever had your toe cut off? Have you ever had your foot cut off? Mm -hmm. Have you ever had your whole leg cut off and attached by a piece of meat? Like, nobody's experienced these things and they're still alive. So for him to grievously downplay this Taliban's injuries, I think he was just telling the military police what he thought they wanted to right. hear. Yeah, to, to get him back. Right. and where, where he said, back home where I'm safe. Yeah. This might be a really good time to... Oh. Uh, <coughs> would you be able to like tell the listeners what happened on that day like leading up to that moment like yeah, what? I, I can do the lead up but I don't discuss that's, that's what fine. I did or what I don't yeah, yeah. but on, on that day though there was some pretty heavy combat oh, it, was, it was so the best way to describe that was my warrant officer who was like a 25 <coughs> 27 I think you're a veteran at that point right you alright Dylan yeah. yeah went down the wrong way yeah <laughs> So he had said at my court-martial, and this is a guy who had had... He's one of those guys who walks left chest to ground because he's got three rows of gongs on his chest. Like he's metal... Yeah. I call him metal heavy. <laughs> he has seen some shit, believe me. And uh, he said that was the most batshit crazy day of my life to that point 
So if you've got this 27 plus year veteran saying that was the craziest day of his life, October 19th in the province of Helmand, Afghanistan, yeah, that's pretty indicative. This is a guy who, had he been to Afghanistan before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd seen it all. He'd yeah. seen it all, this guy. And I mean, more more importantly than Afghanistan, he'd been in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. So he'd seen atrocities. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's... He'd seen uh, horrific shit. Yeah, that's that's a mission that... Uh, oh, it's a it's a PTSD. You, you gotta read the book by Scott Casey called Ghost Keepers. Uh, he, I read the Medic Pocket, but I haven't read it. Okay, Ghost so this is different. Uh, he's... Um, He's stationed out of, uh, he lives in BC, but he's okay. written a terrific book about uh, being in Bosnia oh, wow. uh, in the, I think it was called the Krajina district. I, I don't know if I could read it. Like it I, it's, it's, it's absolutely horrifying. I had no idea what these guys went oh. through. Like I, I was interviewed in Vancouver by somebody from Victoria on the island. And uh, he had said that there was a veteran who had just committed suicide by cop. Yeah, and he'd been to Bosnia like three or four times and what was the deal and I said I had been to Macedonia as a para but that's nothing like having been in a Canadian uniform wearing the blue beret or the blue helmet in Bosnia and I said from everything that I know and the veterans who were there that I talked to I said that mission was an absolute PTSD incubator and I believe strongly that the Canadian government owes a huge apology to every single woman and man who served in uniform in the former Yugoslavian Republic. Because, you know, to put somebody in a blue beret or helmet and say, you have to watch atrocity daily and you're not allowed to intervene because nobody shot at you. Yeah. Because and these, nobody and these guys took a pot bullets. shot at you. Yeah. Oh my God. Criminal. Yeah. Criminal. That the Canadian government did that to our soldiers was fucking criminal out and out and they owe them an apology and they owe them a lot more than that they owe them more than an apology like i had a, a warrant officer who who told me and this fellow officer in the officer's mess he just invited himself in and started talking one day and it was incredible what he said but he was at a checkpoint in bosnia and this bus pulled up and serbs got out and they put bosnian people up against the wall they murdered them killed them shot them with ak's in front of the Canadians, and this blonde woman winked at this warrant officer to say, eh, and then got on the bus and they drove off. So here's, here's all these Canadian peacekeepers. They weren't allowed to do anything because they weren't shot mm-hmm. at. They weren't in harm's way. They just fucking witnessed this atrocity, but they weren't allowed to do anything. Yeah. And how the fuck do you not get PTSD from that? How are you not scarred for the rest of your life? So when he was telling the story... He's yeah. breathing like Just a like crazy man. Yeah, yeah, literally, right? Because the woman winked at him. She winked at him. Yeah. So all of this is going to haunt him for the rest of his life. And that's why I say unequivocally that the Canadian government owes a lot to these veterans. I thank well, Christ that I never had to go because I would have gone to jail. I know I would have. I, I, I couldn't see something like that without doing something. So these guys were more disciplined than I would have been. And because they were more disciplined, they're mentally fucked for the rest of their life. It's a. Uh, it, it's not only like the fact that our government put them in that situation, but uh, how like our government like downplayed, right? Uh, right. Like publicly, right? Uh, and covered like covered right. things like the Madoc pocket right. up. Uh, yeah, when they should have been praising. Yeah, yeah, action, yeah. Right? 
Yeah, and I think that choked up a lot of the veterans. Oh, yeah, no kidding. Know. It was, like, well, it was we, our biggest action since uh, Korea. Right. You know, like. We literally defended innocent civilians, and it's brushed under the table because yeah. Canadians don't do that. So Canadians I, don't start fights. Like, like I think, what was it? Like uh, They acknowledged that in 97. It happened in 92, right. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, ridiculous. Uh, it's criminal. Criminal. Yeah. No, I, I literally think it's criminal. Yeah, it, it, it goes back to this... Uh, you know, reading reading books from people who were there, there's there seemed like there was this uh, world view that, like you said, the Canadian Army it wasn't an army; it was a peacekeeping force. Right? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, that affected us in our time yeah, in yeah. Afghanistan, right? It did. That that mentality carried over to our time. Absolutely, right? absolutely. And there's no peace to keep. There's peace to make, right? You have to actually make the conditions for peace yeah. before you can actually protect it. And if the conditions aren't established, if they don't exist, there is no peacekeeping. I had somebody on a blog say to me during my court-martial, well, why was Captain Samurai even carrying a weapon? Yeah. Fucking what? Like, yeah. what? Like, why was Captain Samurai carrying a weapon? Because he's going to be killed in about five seconds if he isn't. Like, it, we're not on a peacekeeping mission. There's no peace to keep. We have to create peace. And the only way we can create it is by killing or capturing enough Taliban to bring them to the peace table. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of uh, regular Canadians at home watching this play out on the news were, were thinking, well, how are we, we going to win a war like this? Right. Yeah. And I'm sure you, you guys being on the front lines, you, you probably thinking the same thing. Sure, right. So well, nobody's ever won. That's right. Right. What did it start? Eighteen seventeen. There, there's people. There's, uh, I, I just I saw something fascinating that there are Americans in Afghanistan now who, who weren't were, born when right. like the war started. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. But you, well, you, I mean, that was my fear too, is that at some point my own daughters could be there, foreseeably, because women are allowed to fight in frontline infantry units in Canada. Unlike other militaries, so are my daughters gonna have to go? Are they gonna have to go and fight there? Right. right. And that was a concern for you. Sure, absolutely it was because I don't want my daughters to have to go. Yeah. Right? I don't want them to have to experience this. I uh, like I don't have kids, so maybe my uh, like view is skewed. But I feel like if I ever did have kids, I would want them to uh, like experience the military and yeah, probably warfare as well. Yeah. I, I'd be really happy if my daughters. I, I guess I, I guess the thing is, is like not in the the forever war, right? right. Yeah. Right. yeah. No, but that's what Afghanistan yeah, yeah, yeah. is like. I yeah, call yeah. it I call it the Clone Wars. Yeah, yeah. Like I yeah. served under General Kenobi in the Clone Wars. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nothing, nothing's changed. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and if you look at it, like uh, the, the scope of the mission was such that I don't think it was set up for success right. because. It wasn't about ill-defined goals. Yeah, that's right. Like, uh, no, I, I, I won't say who, but I had a very senior officer tell me, and I think he said up until 2008, we didn't even have a doctrinal policy on how we were going to win the war. We Canadian military, I think it was 2008, we did not have a paper on, you know, uh, a policy yeah. on how we're going to win this fight. Like, it didn't exist. Well, when I left in, uh, like, I guess it's December 2013. Um, you know, we got a like they brought most of the troops uh, into uh, 
I can't remember what building it was, but uh, like a you know a, a large auditorium style building in right. uh, in Kabul, and you know there's this general I can't remember who it was, but you know he's like, we won, right? We won. <laughs> yeah, mission accomplished. That's great. What the fuck did we yeah. win? Yeah. <laughs> like we're we're leaving, yeah. <laughs> and and the job is not finished, right? Like yeah. Uh, and, and, and you know there's like like in my platoon there's like the the hard chargers that like oh yeah like um. You know, we uh, we did our job, and like it was up to the like Afghans to like uh, carry it on from right. there. Right. And, like, like you don't They're you don't capable, you, yeah you don't finish a war like when handing it off. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. I I I went there, and I mean I went there three times. Yeah. And I consider my third tour my court martial, and that was the scariest fight of my life. Yeah, yeah. Like I literally tell people I have had three tours in Afghanistan, and technically my third tour was my court martial, but that was the scariest shit I'd ever experienced in my life. Because at least in combat, you can throw a grenade, you can shoot, you can call in assets, but in a court martial, you're just forced to sit there and listen. As just people, take it, right? Yeah. Just take it, right? So I, I think I've earned the privilege of yeah. saying that was my third tour. But you should probably get another bar. You know? I should. I should. <laughs> well, I think we were there technically long enough. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. no, the the judge set it up in such a way that we were there long enough so that we could get medals. And not saying that he did it because he wanted to get a medal. He probably did though. <laughs> I'm not gonna say it. Can we come? With with some of my close friends, uh you know that have uh, that have been in combat before. Uh, n- none of my, uh, not really anybody that was in the Canadian military. But uh, you know, we like often talk about uh, like the desire and want and the enjoyment that we got from uh, from being in combat. And uh, you know, I think there's a there's a bit of a, like a stigma about admitting sure. to how much you actually like enjoy Absolutely. warfare. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to get your perspective yeah. on that. I mean, I don't know if it's so much enjoying warfare or kill or be killed, but it's definitely, and I think I mentioned this earlier, it's definitely addictive, the adrenaline rush. Like, it was, um, what was it? Ernest Hemingway said, there is no thrill like the hunting of the human, there is no hunting like the hunting of the human animal. Right. right. And then Winston Churchill who had been shot at many times said there's nothing as exhilarating in life as to be shot at without result. And and for me, that was definitely it. I wouldn't say I was in so much to the combat, but I was definitely really into the feeling of being alive. Like you've never felt yeah, so yeah. alive as when you're yeah. being shot at. Right. I, I was definitely addicted to that. And, and I still am like once you've, had those feelings you've never felt so alive so uh, i'd like to take the this opportunity uh to thank our unofficial sponsor for today um tea bag blended scotch whiskey Amen. it is very smooth and you don't even smell after you drink it you don't smell at all amazing <laughs> and it's uh, unchilled filtered whatever that means yeah yeah <laughs> tea bag cheers guys cheers yeah. cheers again ching ching cheers Rob. cheers I wanted to ask you something, and while we're on the mic, we'll make it official. Um, if you if you could go back, if you could do it all over again, would you be so obvious that you were a Canadian? Because I remember, and I don't mean to be 
offensive. I, I just, I want to be honest with how yeah, I yeah. felt at the time. I remember thinking, you, you basically, I don't want to say you threw yourself under the bus by wearing the Canadian flag. And I get why you did it. And I get why you explained it in the book. And, and I think it's legit what you've said. But I wonder if you could go back. Would you not wear the Canadian flag? Would you not do the social media? Because I, I think, and I mean, I wasn't there. And I'm not judging you. I'm just going off my own experience here. But I can't help but think that if you hadn't... If you'd gone under the radar, yeah, yeah. maybe you could have stayed there longer. So right? so here's the thing. It's like, like I was misled a little bit by uh, someone here who I thought was like on my side, right? Uh, and like, like we, and, and, and uh, along with uh, my fixer in Iraq, like we had this idea of like putting together like a Western. Right. Abraham unit, right? Lincoln Brigade. Yeah. 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 Uh, in hindsight, would I have done that? No. Uh, and so if you, be, could, be, if because you could go back, you'd, you'd, I would forego all that. Yeah. Really? Uh, because like, like my buddy, Michael, uh, who went to Syria in, I think 2016. So like my business partner now. So they actually were able to put together like a, a Western, like veteran unit, uh, in Syria. Hmm. Uh, I, can't remember how, like it wasn't many people maybe 15 but still much better than what i managed to do by broadcasting it right uh and like i had no idea like when when i when i did my first interview like uh like i was thinking that there'd be like a 250 or whatever like a small article like somewhere in section whatever yeah. of the newspaper the back pages, like, and, yeah. and then like like i wake up and like i'm fucking on the front page of every newspaper fucking across canada <laughs> right. and like my heart was just like oh like like i had, I had a fucking panic attack like for real uh that was that was so what made was, you panic what was the fear well just like that exposure uh but i mean the fear of what what were you exposing like were you afraid the fucking posers back home were gonna go no, after no, your family? No, 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 no. Like, uh, I don't do 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 well with like being in like the public right. spotlight. Sure. Uh, I think I can it, actually it gave me an incredible amount of anxiety, and it wasn't because of anything to do with the war. It was just like like people messaging me and like uh, and mentioning my name and like okay. like like I just I wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, I'm going to try to answer this question because I think I bring <laughs> yeah, like a little bit of a different perspective to this. It goes back to when, yeah, like Dylan, he is contrary to what you saw in the paper. He's not a guy who wants to be in the papers. Right. Uh, I, I never got that vibe. But you, here's a story. When you got back from Iraq, I, I did what any like older brother would do. And I started like pestering Dylan with questions about like, oh, uh, like, how, what did you do over there? Like, what, what was happening? Tell, like, fill me in on the details. And Dylan's like, you know, didn't really like give me much. But over over time, like he like opened up a little bit and told me like, you know, some of the the stuff that he had done over there. And uh, eventually, like I I sort of came to the conclusion that like this is a story that people want to see or read about. And I said, Dylan, we gotta we should write about this. Right. And do you remember what your reaction was, Dylan? Well, I didn't want to. Yeah, you you said. Oh, Russ, that's a fucking stupid idea. Nobody's going to want to read this story. Well, so, so like, let was just back up a little bit. But, like, so when I first got back, like, my dad, like, made me talk to the media again. And, like, I like I broke down and cried. 
because uh, like, I, I didn't want to do it so bad. Uh, so I like, like cried out of frustration. Like, 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 like out of like, out of like anxiety. Uh, like about, fear like, of doing it. Yeah. Like, uh, so, so like, uh, you didn't want to feel like a spokesperson. I like, I, I don't even know if I can answer it. Uh, but like, it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming having these like media people like like sure. like I wanting to talk to me and like I get that and like yeah, totally yeah like like what and like like that was the first time like I love being overseas like I love being in combat uh, and it was harder it was harder dealing with that like like right. the yeah well that, and, and then once I did it there was like a weight lifted off my shoulders uh, and I'm glad my dad made me do it that's how I ended up in investment banking uh, like by doing an interview and uh and then when the book thing came around uh i did eventually it was like well dad you were right about me talking to the media that got me this job so like maybe a book will like right. do open some other door yeah yeah open a, oh, exactly exactly so hmm. um but yes to answer your question going back i would have never uh told anybody what well I, I wondered at the time like reading your book and for my own perspective i was wondering about that i always wanted to ask you that yeah it's, that's a I good never question got the chance before today yeah. so. it's a great question yeah mm-hmm. yeah i don't know it's, it's a tough one to answer to you we but it, but in stuff like this there are no easy answers yeah, no, yeah. right there's no I, I think a lot of journalists Especially when they interview you, they're after the thirty-second soundbite. Yeah, yeah. But what we've experienced goes so far above that mm-hmm. that it's really hard to encapsulate. How do you get it out? Right. You, you almost you almost have to do it in a, in a book. Right. You're not gonna get into that soundbite. Right. What what you're actually going right. through and believing and, and right. thinking it in, in thirty seconds. Yeah, how do you it's encapsulate impossible. all of those? Right. Yeah. I'm wondering though, like with your book, was there any like what was the genesis of your book what was there a moment where you're like i gotta tell right. the story of, yeah, absolutely. of afghanistan there was. i was uh the first job i had i was like a consultant but it was basically mobile security officer i was a security guard in a truck driving around northern alberta at the uh, uh oil rig sites just doing security and i had a a colleague in one of these little shacks and I was watching the news as he was typing up one of our patrol reports and the officer in charge of mental health in the Canadian forces was standing behind a podium and he was lying and he was literally saying on the news that there is no mental health crisis in the Canadian forces all of our soldiers are being treated in a timely and efficient manner and I didn't even know it but my hands had balled into fists and my colleague looked at me and he's like, Rob, are you okay? And I couldn't hear him. I was deaf. I literally had auditory occlusion where I was so focused and raged and filled listening to this bullshit coming out of this officer's mouth that right there and then I committed to writing a book to call bullshit and write the story of my tour. But I knew I'd have a book tour. And during my book tour, I'd have my, you know, I'd be up on my soapbox mm-hmm. and I'd have a chance to say, bullshit, there's 100% a crisis in the Canadian forces and our soldiers are not being treated in a timely and effective manner. When Captain Robert Semra goes to a psychologist's office, tears in his eyes, saying, you have to help my friend, he's suicidal. 
I've been awake for 72 hours now. I'm on suicide watch. We have to get this guy's help. And the one, I say again, the one psychologist for 7,800 plus troops at CFB Petawawa. And the psychologist says to me, Rob, every single one of these dossier, one of these files on my desk is a suicidal soldier. Why should your guy get put to the top of the list? And he raised his hand about a foot high off of his desk and I wanted to fucking cry. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's a crisis within the Canadian forces and we're not doing enough for our soldiers. Yeah. And that was the genesis. And I said, I will write a book. I will have my book tour. I will stand on my soapbox and I will shout as long and as hard as I have to that we are not doing enough for our troops when they come home from that terrible place. It's uh, the whole issue of PTSD. You know, I often wonder, uh, there's, there's no doubt that soldiers, lots of soldiers are suffering from it, from Afghanistan, from Bosnia, which we mentioned before. Is this something that is like a new phenomenon, like recent to like the, the 90s and above? Or do you think soldiers in the past oh, were, were suffering I as mean, well? in World War One, what was yeah. it called? Shell shock. Shell shock and then and World combat War II fatigue. combat fatigue, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it's always been around. I think only now we've labeled it. Only now are we starting to look at it, but there is still very much a stigma attached to it. So the example that I give for PTSD is the best example I think I could possibly give. My friends were attached at Mazumgar. That was their base. They were attached. They were in the Om, and they were uh, uh, basically doing patrols with their Afghans outside of Mazumgar into the bazaar in the local area. They were in the shit daily. Constant firefights, IEDs, explosions, Apache gunships, the whole thing, the whole piece. So they woke up early because at that time the Muslims were observing Ramadan. So they wanted to get their patrol out of the way before the worst of the heat hit because they weren't allowed food or drink until sunset. These guys were fighting all throughout the morning and the afternoon. They'd get back to their base and then the Afghan police and army would rock up with their trucks and drop off critically wounded. And I don't mean a guy with a boo-boo, I mean mm -hmm. a guy missing a leg, a guy with half of his face sheared off. And then they do first aid all night. Because they had tactical combat casualty care training, so they were basically a step below medics. Well, the battle group at that base would say to these guys, well, you have the Afghan interpreters, you guys have the specialist training, you guys take care of it. So they'd patrol all day, be in the shit all day, and then all fucking night, all throughout the morning, they'd be doing life-saving first aid, covered in blood, yeah. not even a chance to clean their uniforms, let alone rinse their fucking hands of all the blood they've got on them. And then they'd go and do it again. Yeah. And they'd do this six, seven days a week. Yeah. And they'd do it for a month. So at the end of the month, who in God's name would not have PTSD? How can you fight all day, be scared shitless of getting hurt, maimed, or killed, or captured, and Christ help you if you get captured by mm -hmm. those guys, right? Skinned alive like a fucking deer? Literally yeah. crucified and skinned alive like your wrists and ankles slit and your skin peeled off? Like that's what you have to look forward to mm -hmm. if you're captured by the Taliban. That is a very real threat, right? So you do that all day, and then you're like trying to sew fucking dismembered limbs on at night, like you're yeah. gonna be messed up. 
And, and if you do that without any sleep, you yeah. are 100% guaranteed to have PTSD. Every single guy who was in that omelet to come off that base has PTSD. You can't not have it. Mm -hmm. And then you come back home and you're dealing with Veterans Affairs Canada where they mm -hmm. lose your file and then they lose your online file and then they lose it again. And then because it's holidays, nobody's submitted your file. Right? Yeah, right. So, so you literally put us in harm's way. And now that we're back home, nobody gives a fuck. Or if you do give a fuck, you're on holiday. So you can't help me with my claim. It's really just easier to like... Come on. To deal with it on your own. But how many people effectively deal with it? No, no I, I, I know. And, and, you know, like, like I've, like, you know, been, like, up and down over the last sure. six years or whatever, uh, you know. Uh, well, I remember you were very honest with what you said, how you felt. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 like, even though, like, even though I am, like, engaged with Veterans Affairs right now, like, their help is, like, really menial. Uh, you know what? I'll say this about Veterans Affairs Canada. There are some awesome people, right? There really are, and they care. There's just something about asking a veteran who has PTSD to fill out 600 pages of paperwork. Yeah. When you know that somebody who has PTSD can't fucking fill out a single page. When they can't get up in the morning. <laughs> you can't get up in the morning. Like, just stuff like this is, like, far more helpful. Right. Like, like talking to, talking to, like, like people that have been through the like similar sure. things is like far more helpful than right. like me going to my weekly uh, right like head doctor appointment. You know. Uh, well, see, that's what I said at the back of my book. I'm more proud of that letter at the back of the book saying reject suicide than I am of the book. Yeah, yeah. Literally, and and I was talking with my good friend today, and I was literally saying I didn't write that letter, like. God or the force or Buddha, Allah, whatever the fuck you want to call it, the higher power, literally wrote that letter through me because I'm not that clever. Yeah, I'm you, not that smart. Yeah. I couldn't write that. And when you have veterans and civilians say that letter has literally saved my life, oh my God, like that, that is dumbfounding. I, I was gobsmacked when I heard that. But I agree with you completely. Find somebody that you know, somebody that you trust, and if they were there and they, you know, spilled the same blood and ate the same mud, all the better. But if not, find somebody, civilian, officer, NCO, NCM, whatever, friend that you can trust with these things and then just be open. Just be yeah, open. Yeah. Nobody can help you. And that was the whole point of that letter that I wrote in the back of my book. Nobody can fucking help you if you're not honest with how you're doing. I'm fucked up right now. I desperately need help. I'm in a bad way. Please let me vent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Help me. Help me somehow. Right? If you're not going to take that step and say, I'm in a bad way and I need help. Hey, nobody can help you. Right? Nobody's psychic. Yeah, You've got to right. be open and upfront about it. Yeah. PTSD is incredibly real. Right? It's incredibly real. And I don't know how you could go through any of those experiences without having PTSD. Like I was diagnosed clear of PTSD, but I sure as fuck have moral injury. I have suffered from moral injury. Yeah. And yeah. Some people say moral injury is PTSD. Fine. I don't care how you want to describe it. I've seen stuff. I've done stuff. It's terrible. It affects me. Right. It haunts me. 
Now, how do I get help? Is moral injury like an actual like designation? Yeah, it is yeah. now, and it's and it's changing. And some people say it. Falls it, 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 it is very like very, like like there's subtle differences. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, uh, I, I I mean even though like I do have a PTSD diagnosis from Veterans Affairs, like my head doctor generally refers to it as a moral right. injury. Yeah, uh, and and it's kind of one of those gray overlapping yeah, yeah. areas where some people say. It's PTSD. Some people say it's different, but it's literally you've been put into a situation. Either Where you could act your, how right. You, it's violated your morals. Yeah. Right. And God knows I've suffered that. Yeah. No, no question about it. Right. Yeah. And if, if I remember correctly, that letter that you have at the back of the book where you are encouraging people to seek help right. that that was quite providential wasn't it because you for some reason there was like that extra page in the book that the right. publisher so put in. What was what was amazing about that was I had heard about uh, a lady veteran who had killed herself and she had kids and I was devastated. It fucking broke my heart. I was so upset and I had had friends who killed themselves. I had known, known uh, soldiers who killed themselves and for me it was just the floodgate was open and I bawled. I cried for half an hour straight. I couldn't stop crying. And I finally composed myself and I grabbed my laptop and I locked myself in the basement and I literally prayed and I said, God, give me the words because this is a fucking travesty and I need to write something to encourage soldiers to stop, stop doing this. And, and I literally prayed and I channeled, like I channeled God through me because I, I don't claim to be able to write anything that good or that moving. So I, I wrote that, I submitted it and I said to the editors uh, of the book, I realized it had to be in the book. And I said, I don't care if I ever make another cent on royalties. This letter has to go into the book somehow. Mm -hmm. It's like we're living in the days of Johann Gutenberg's printing press, yeah. where it's <laughs> so expensive with wood blocks to change letters. Like, I get it, it's money. And you probably, you're in the business of making money and you don't want to do it. But I'm telling you, you have a real opportunity right now to save fucking soldiers' lives. Yeah. And, and they did. God bless Harper Collins. They totally stepped up. Mm -hmm. They said, we will do this at our own cost. And by accident, there are three empty pages at the back of every copy of your book. And uh, when I read that in an email, I broke down and I cried again. And that was the first time that kind of my heart and my mind together came together in unison. And I realized that everything that I had been through my family, my friends, my loved ones was for a point and the point was to get that letter into the back of the book so that it could save people's lives. Yeah, well said. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I think we're going to keep on chatting for a while, but this podcast, we're probably going to cut it off shortly because uh, we've been running, uh, we're over, well over an hour now, but just to wrap things up quickly, like favorite, favorite part of writing the book. Probably when uh, my major said to me and uh, Captain Rich, on the far side of this mountaintop are going to be Afghan trucks. <laughs> I remember that. Abandon the Afghans. Run for your lives. <laughs> the last guy to make it is the last guy ditched, left behind in the Registan Desert. Yeah, there, there's a bit more said beyond that. but, but uh... I, I was gobsmacked. I'm like, you're not kidding. Are you, sir? Like, you're literally telling us to abandon our Afghans. 
save ourselves, get on a truck so we don't get stuck in the desert. And he said, yes, yeah. hopefully, inshallah, I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> and I, like, I was writing that part and my wife in the basement was concerned for me because she heard me laughing hysterically. Yeah. And I remember she thought, holy fuck, he's finally lost. <laughs> Rob has lost his shit. Like, he's, he's been out there for weeks banging this thing out. He's finally gone mental. He's lost his mind. And she came upstairs and she's like, oh, are you okay? And I said, I was there. I know it happened. I experienced it. But no one's going to fucking believe it. Right. No one's going to believe that this is actually what happened. Like we ditched our Afghans, they chased us, some of us got on the truck, some of us didn't, and we fucking drove off into the night, leaving them. Like, yeah, and, and it's so, hilarious. So surreal. It's a hilarious moment. I remember, I was laughing when I read this. Right. My, I, I was went, laughing when yeah. it happened, but I couldn't believe it. Yeah. People in the house were like, what, what's going on here? So mm -hmm. I actually, I read the section out loud uh, to my wife who was nearby, but uh, was it uh, your friend Rich who like says like you better hurry up because if you don't you don't want to be the last man behind the Afghans are gonna get you. <laughs> well, no, he literally said, and if you fall behind, you will be raped. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like nice, good one. So he actually said that. He actually said it. Yeah, that's... yeah. He he was uh, Kate Bretner. Yeah, and he had a, a wicked sense of humor, but. Yeah, that's hilarious. Probably wasn't using a sense of humor. He wasn't joking at the time. He <laughs> really <laughs> thought we were going to be raped. It must have been. Uh, it must have been Thursday. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Man, love Friday. Yeah. Okay, so what about uh, like worst part of the book that you didn't like writing at all? Oh, probably but you had to the incident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I mean, I can't. I can't submit any new evidence. So I can only say what come out. What came out in the trial. Mm -hmm. Which really bothered me because mm -hmm. this Taliban's injuries were terribly downplayed in the mm -hmm. trial. And even eyewitnesses, I found, didn't accurately describe it. So I actually wrote that part of the book in conjunction with my lawyer. And my lawyer, yeah. I actually was consulting with him at the time that I was writing it. And uh, we did what was true to the testimony right. at the time. But I wanted to say how horrifically, grievously injured this guy was, but I couldn't go into it. So if you had to go back, you, you might... Uh, I wouldn't, because no. like I've, I've never, in public interviews, said that I did it or I didn't. Because I always felt that I had a chance to speak up during the trial. I chose not to, as was my right as a Canadian mm -hmm. citizen. And ever after, I decided... If you don't say it during the trial, then you're not going to say it ever again. And some people consider it a cop-out. I say, fuck you. Mm -hmm. You weren't there. <laughs> you never been in this situation. Yeah, you didn't like, experience what yeah. I did, right? Like they literally at the Royal Military College in Kingston have what they call the Rob Semra scenario. They call it the Semra scenario. Mm -hmm. And you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Yeah. So what do you choose to do, right? It goes yeah. back to that question, do you do the right thing or do you... Right, do well, you P.O. Casavant, yeah. right? Yeah. Do you worry about your career or do you do what you have to do? So my friend... And morally. Right, well, do, yeah, right? absolutely. Captain Rich, who was my best friend on the build-up and then during the tour, the guy who came out to say, hey, these two guys are here to arrest you, did, right? did they send him on the plane specifically to like break the news to you yeah. or was that just like... Yeah. Well, no, because they needed an officer to take over because the officer in charge was about right. to be relieved, yeah. namely okay. me. Right? Okay. What a... Sorry. Uh, like, like I, I think I read your book when I was like working in the oil sands a long time ago. Sure. But who, who laid the charges? Two officers from the MPs. 
Oh, okay. Oh, okay, right, right, right. Okay, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I was kind of wondering if... They cautioned me. Yeah, yeah. And I knew the charges were coming, but the actual charges didn't happen until I was at Camp Mirage. Right, right. And then they charged him with attempted murder and murder. So that was a couple days after. Was Was that like a... General that did that? No, no, it's just MPs? normal MPs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, but Captain Rich was this amazing friend during the build-up training. And talk about God or the Force or the higher power. I, I don't push my faith on yeah, anybody. Yeah. Whatever you want to believe, that's fine by me. But talk about, you know, congruity and synchronicity and foreshadowing. So this Captain Rich... He said to me about how he was an uh, Ontario Provincial Police Officer, OPP, in Northern Ontario. And there was a two-car accident. And a drunk driver had taken out a family. Killed them all, except for a girl who was bent over backwards in the back seat space. And the car was on fire. So her back was broken. He couldn't help her. The car was on fire. And she was screaming. And he drew his pistol. And he thought, I'm going to mercy kill her. Because she's screaming. And he didn't, and he reholstered her pist- his pistol, and he watched her burn to death. Because he knew that had he shot her, then he'd be charged with murder, manslaughter, and the whole career. That in itself is like the essence of a, right, a that, moral injury. That right? is 100% the definition of a moral injury, right? 100%. And he told me, long before we ever got to Afghanistan, he said, Rob, I dream about that girl every night. Yeah. So he's traumatized and scarred by that girl. And he said to me, it's the people who walk away who are haunted for life. And I never forgot that. Yeah. That's... Yeah. But I mean, talk about insane, crazy foreshadowing and, you know, continuation of events, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's... uh... Well, that guy was terribly PTSD riddled. And when I needed his help with this other soldier, the guy who I was on the suicide watch for, he wasn't able to help. And it turned out that he wasn't able to help because he was in such a bad place himself. Right, right. But I needed him to have told me at the time, Rob, I'm ghosting you and I'm not taking your calls or your texts because I'm fucked up too. Mm -hmm. And that harkens back to the letter in the book where it's saying, hey, tell people. Tell people, mm-hmm. hey Rob, I want to fucking help you with this guy. He was my troop first, but I can't because I'm fucked up. Like say that, say that so that I know. Yeah, yeah. It, I, it's hard though, right? Like it's yeah, hard. It, it's so it, hard to I, like. I, uh, I get it. I totally get it. I totally get it. Right. What is out there for soldiers to to contact when? Like, do you think most soldiers who are suffering from PTSD know who to contact? Or is it just... Uh, well, if they're currently serving, then they're not going to want to say anything because right. there's such a stigma attached. But, but you have to get beyond that. Like, it, at some point, you have to care for yourself first. You have to stop worrying about reputation. You have to stop worrying about what your friends and family are going to think, and you have to save yourself. A, a friend is the first and foremost thing because, right. generally speaking... Other avenues of approach are going to lead to more harm than good, right. like especially when you have like a like armed police showing up at your door sure. to do a welfare check on you. Right. That's probably not the best uh, like approach, right? right. Uh, like as that guy in Cape 
I think it was Cape Breton, maybe two or three years ago. No, 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 uh, another guy. uh, You you know, like, uh, and we've seen this too. uh, There's a guy from like PBCLI uh, down Kingston, Brockville area. Same thing happened to him. Like, you call like a suicide hotline. Like Veterans Affairs has a suicide hotline, but like that could very end up like with police at your door with guns, right? Like, uh, so probably reach out to a friend and say it's the best uh, well what I used to say to the troops under my command was if the warrior support center is full or if they can't help you or if they're not helping you go to a civvy hospital I used to say that all the time go to a civvy hospital and say I'm a soldier I've served I've been overseas and I'm in distress this is probably a great time to cap things off we're going to finish our drinks here Still got some of the bottle, the tea bag right. bottle left, but uh, you know, I, I think we've had a great conversation. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, well, thanks for doing this, Rob. Yeah, thanks yeah, so I'm much really, for. Uh, I'm really happy you guys are putting this out there. It's awesome. Yeah, that you've created this. Well, it's it's a relatively small. Oh, I hate using the word community because everybody uses it, but I mean, it's a small group of military authors in Canada. It makes sense to get together and share right. stories and. Uh, Good you know, you. stick together. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for making the time. Thank and you. Thank you. We'll probably do this again sometime. It'd be yeah. awesome. Okay. Yeah. All right, Rob. Thanks a lot. Right and on. Have a good Thank night. You. We're out.